All right. Thank you, Pastor Eric, for that. Thanks for that update, that little lay of the land here. Good morning, River West Church. I am so thankful to be with you this morning. And I actually want to tell you just a little bit more about the lay of the land here over the next few Sundays. So Eric told you about next Sunday, our virtual connect opportunity right after the YouTube premiere at 10. And then we'll come back together for the drive-in worship. And what I want to let you know is that the following Sunday, we're going to begin to talk as a part of our series about Christ and his vision for the church. We're actually going to take a few Sundays to talk about this beautiful aspect of Christ's church that involves ethnicity, the multi-ethnic church of Jesus Christ. We know that Christ, by his blood, what did he do? He ransomed people, the book of Revelation tells us, from every tribe, language, people, and nation. It's this beautiful vision that Christ has for his church. And we're gonna talk about the meaning of the multi-ethnic church, but we're also gonna take a Sunday to talk about sin and how sin has marred that vision, both within the church, but also in the broader world, how sin has created division and hurt and injustice when it comes to ethnicity in our world. And then we're gonna take a Sunday to talk about the power of the gospel, River West, that church, that the church has this beautiful power to bring about healing and redemption and our role in that as the church of Jesus Christ. So I'm really excited about that part of our series. I can't wait to be with you to talk about those things. But today, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna lay one more stone in our foundation of our understanding of Christ's vision for his church. And I'm gonna do that by sharing with you two statements that will form the headline for my message. The first statement will appear really obvious to you. It's very simple. But the second statement is going to create a tension. Here's statement number one. The church is for the world. Isn't that obvious? We're for this place. This is God's good world. We're for this world. However, and here's statement number two, here comes the tension. In order to be for the world, sometimes the church must be very much against the world. Do you feel that tension? We're for this place. This is our home. This is God's good, God's good world. But also we're at odds with this world. And in a very real sense, we are in solidarity with our world and the culture around us. But also often we find ourselves needing to be very much in conflict. Leslie Newbegin, the great British missiologist, he called this the two-fold posture of the faithful witness of the church. I'm highly indebted to Newbegin for his thinking on this. He described it as a tension, a two-fold posture that always is intention, must be whole intention. Here's what he wrote. He said, it is precisely because the church loves and identifies with its culture that it opposes the idolatry and sin that can destroy the flourishing of human life in God's world. Newbegin said the church is against the world precisely because it is for it. Isn't that true? Do you hear what he's saying there? 
He's actually saying sometimes the only way to actually be for something that you love is to come against it in a way. I have this vivid memory of my mother when I was a child pounding on our kitchen window, screaming at me. It felt very much like she was coming against me as I was riding my big wheel down our driveway. And there she is pounding on the window, screaming, and I'm rattled by this response. And I slam on the brakes of my big wheel just as a car goes flying down our street. Now that analogy obviously breaks down in some ways, but, th- but there's a truth in there. Sometimes in order to be for something or someone that you love, you actually come against something that's happening to them or something that they're actually doing. And it creates this tension. And as Christians, we live with this tension. I feel the tension, you feel the tension. The church comes to critical moments in the history of our world where the tension is particularly acute. But here's what I wanna let you know, River West, this is actually, this is part of the story that God's telling. Part of God's purpose for the church in the world is to live in that tension. it's, It's at the heart of our mission in his world. And so today I'm gonna to lay a biblical foundation. We always start with the Bible. So open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter two. We're gonna look at verses nine to 12. I'm gonna lay a biblical foundation and then I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna pull on the threads of that tension a little bit more for our church. Here's what Peter said, 1 Peter two, I'll do just nine and 10 right now. He said, but you, he's talking to the church and that you is plural. So you all are, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's a tension forming. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So here we have two of the most dense identifying verses in the whole New Testament about the identity of the church in the world. It would actually be unthinkable to do a series on the church. I will build my church, Jesus said, and not go to this passage. And these two verses are all about how the church of Jesus Christ has taken on the identity of Old Testament Israel. Perhaps you noticed that, or perhaps you stumbled over all of these odd phrases. These phrases are foreign to us. Chosen race, what is Peter talking about with the chosen race? A royal priesthood, both of those words are fraught with opportunity. We hear royal, we think Meghan Markle, right? And all the royals and we hear priesthood and we think of all kinds of things. What is a royal priesthood? A holy nation, a people of God's own. Here's the thing you gotta realize, all of those phrases have been lifted directly out of the Old Testament. And every place they come from, they're describing Israel. So for example, Listen to the words of Exodus 19, four through six. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Here's God speaking to the nation of Israel, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, you shall be, listen to this, my treasured possession among all peoples. 
for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words that you're to speak to the people of Israel. Or how about Isaiah chapter 43, verse 20, the wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water to the wilderness, rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. There it is. The people whom I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. Peter's literally quoting from these passages. He's saying, church, if you're gonna understand your identity, you have got to get connected to the story that God's been telling. <laughs> he's taking language, he's marshalling language from the Old Testament. This, this passage is one of the most explicit places where Old Testament Israel is directly associated with the New Testament church. And you say, who cares? Well, it tells us about our place in God's story. We've got to understand this. The church has inherited not only all the blessings of Old Testament Israel, we'll see that in just a minute, but more importantly for Peter's purposes, the Christian church is the continuation of God's story, his redemptive story, that he's been telling from the beginning that goes all the way back to Abraham, Moses, Jacob, Isaac, the people of Israel. We're never gonna be able to fulfill our purpose in the world if we don't know our place in God's story. Now, Peter, he's building to a purpose statement. You see it there in the second half of nine. He says, that you may, and he's gonna say our purpose, but here's the thing. And there's gonna be a tension in that purpose, but here's the thing. We'll never understand that purpose if we lose sight of our place in the story. Have you ever tried to join a story partway through, halfway through? Have you ever uh, walked into a movie theater and you've missed half of a really complex movie or plot line? It's almost impossible to catch up or understand where you are in the story. That's what's happening here. We got to understand the story that we're a part of. This tiny, odd, little people who have been set apart, called called together and then sent back into God's world as a minority in a surrounding culture. God said to Abraham, you will be blessed to be a blessing. They're sent into God's word. They're for the world, blessed to be a blessing, but also they're very different. At times they even appear odd and out of step and, and absurd. They're sent into the world sometimes to even question things that no one else is willing to question or abstain from things that others don't abstain from or live differently. And we see that in these descriptors. So let me walk through them just really quickly. The, the four that I, that I showed you, chosen race, okay? Chosen race. To be chosen by God, it's perhaps the primary way the Bible describes Israel. They're God's chosen people out of all the people groups. And just like Israel, Peter says, but so are you church, you're God's chosen people, right? A chosen race. You say, why? Why were we chosen? I don't know. You know, the people of Israel asked that question too. God, why, why us? And do you know how God responded? Fascinating passage. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. God said, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. There's all the same language from 1 Peter 2. 
out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, verse seven, it was not. So now what, what God's gonna do is he's gonna say, here's all the reasons I didn't choose you. It's not because you're special. It's not because you merit it. It's not because of some inherent value or quality that you have. So why? Because you were, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples. So why, why then, why did God choose us? Well, verse eight, it was because the Lord loves you. Do you see this? He says, I I set my love on you. And do you want to know why? Because I love you. I set my love on you because I set my love on you. And that's the way the Bible describes God's rationale for his choosing. We're a chosen race. This is not uh, race or racial the way we often think of it. This is not the, the, the biblical word ethnos. It's a different word. So Peter's not here talking about an ethnic group that's chosen at all. In fact, there's two words. There's, there's genos and there's ethnos. This is the word genos. It means origin. What Peter's doing here is he's saying, this is... This is a people who have experienced a new birth, a new origin. So there are two races, Peter would say. There's the, there's the old human race. We're all one race, but there's the old race in Adam of a natural birth. And now there's a new race, a second race of people who are born of spiritual birth. And that race comes from what? It comes from every tribe, tongue, language, people group, all, all ethnicities, who maintain the dignity and the beauty of all of their differences, languages, cultures, ethnic beauty and, 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 um, and ethnic beauty and diversity, but that diversity and ethnicity does not continue to be their primary identity marker. Now we're united together under our new birth in Christ, a chosen race, spectacular. And we're a royal priesthood. I can summarize that. It's so simple. It means no more mediator needed. We no longer need a mediator. That's what a priest is. A priest would mediate between God and the people. The priest was the go-between. And Peter's saying, because you've been born of royal blood, that's what royal means. We've been born of royal blood, the the blood of King Jesus. we no longer need a priest because we have direct access to God. In fact, what Peter says is because you've been born of royal blood, you now are the priesthood and I send you into the world to be the mediator of my character and my presence to a world that desperately needs it. But you're also a holy nation. So if priesthood gets at our proximity to God, we don't need a mediator. Holy describes our standing before God. Our right standing before God as his people, friends clothed in the righteousness of Christ. God looks at us and he sees holiness. He sees Christ's righteousness. And that's why we're a people for his possession. I mean, I could take a whole sermon on each of these. I'm giving you just a flyover, but we are a people for God's own possession. God, God we have a special relationship with God. We know that God owns the, he, he owns everything. So obviously this statement, God's own possession, 
it's speaking about something more than just God's rightful ownership of the world. No, this is about God's special connection with the people. When God would speak to Israel, he would say things like, you shall be my people and I will be your God. I will make my dwelling among you. You're my special possess. I will dwell with you. I will be, I will go with you. I'll go before you and come in behind you. And now Peter says, church, don't you realize that story continues even though Israel failed in disobedience and hung God's Messiah on a cross, that does not stop God's purposes from being accomplished in his world. The church is the continuation of that identity and that purpose. So Peter says, this is your place now in the story. All of those blessings, but also that purpose. So, so the, the natural question is why? Peter says, why? Why are we chosen? Why are we this royal priesthood? Why are we holy to God, a holy nation? Why, why are we God's special possession and people? Why, why, why? It's a question the Bible absolutely loves to answer. And the answer is right there, verse nine, part B. Do you see that, that? That's always a huge word. It's saying, okay, now we're getting to a purpose statement. Why did God choose us? Why are we royal priesthood? Why is he cared for us? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous life. There it is. This is probably one of the greatest purpose statements for the church in the New Testament, that you may declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into light. He's given us our identity in order that his identity might be proclaimed through us. We exist to be proclaimers. God made us who we are so that we could make known who he is to proclaim his excellencies. And so look at how Peter unpacks that in the next verse. He says a little more, verse 11. Notice this, it's basically a repeat, but with a little more detail. He says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So sojourners and exiles, that's another Old Testament description of Israel. You're basically the continuation of Israel, continue as sojourners and exiles for the world. But there's a tension because in a sense, we're against the world. We, we're, we're called to abstain from things at times, to stand out, to be set apart, to look weird. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct and among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. That's just a repeat. What's the purpose? Our purpose is to be for this world. Yes, but also at times to, to come against this world. How, why? So that we can proclaim his excellence. So people would see the glory of God. It's a proclamation of his excellencies. Incredibly significant. But do you feel the tension in this? We're proclaimers of the excellencies of a God who what? Who has come to call people out of darkness into light. In other words, this tension 
begins in God before it even applies to us. God is in tension with his world. God loves his world so much that he comes against the darkness of the world. Isn't that profound? This is the heart of the gospel, a a loving God. God so loved the world that he sent his son to take back the darkness. God calling people out of darkness. And this is what it means to proclaim, this is why God is excellent. And this is why as a church, we share that same mission and tension. Part of our purpose of a church is to call people out of darkness into light. I picture Jesus. Do you remember this moment? Just think about darkness to light. Here's Jesus standing at the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus in darkness, wrapped in, in tomb clothes, right? He's, he's in a place of darkness. It's smelly. It's, it's desperate. He's, he's chained by death. And what does Jesus do? He says, Lazarus, come out. Make that journey from darkness to light. This picture of a journey into salvation. I, was, I read this week an illustration. You know, when they, when they designed the Billy Graham Museum in Wheaton, Illinois, they captured this metaphor, darkness to light. They actually designed it architecturally so that when you enter the museum, you begin in a place of darkness And in order to get into the museum, you leave darkness architecturally and you come into a place of great light. And the purpose was a metaphor of salvation of the gracious God who intention, he comes against the darkness and he draws and leads by his grace and his love people out of darkness into light. And River West, the church is nothing more than the continuation of this story, this mission. And so it brings me full circle to my headline. This tension, can you feel it? The church is for the world. Jesus said, I will build my church. And Jesus is accomplishing his mission through this building. We have been placed here to be for the world to accomplish Jesus' mission. The church is to be at home here in a sense, in our cultural setting. We're, we're called to be a blessing here. We're called to fully participate through the guidance of the spirit in seeking to be a blessing, in helping to develop our world, to bring about flourishing, human flourishing, to take on the language, the customs, the symbols, the institutions, so that we can contextualize the gospel always in, in whatever time we find ourselves in. We're for the world, but also we're called to live very much as a prophetic minority, challenging the darkness, questioning the things that no one ever questions, refusing to participate in anything that harms human flourishing, refusing to participate in it, lamenting injustice, calling for change, standing against evil, standing against sin, standing outside of a tomb like Christ, our leader, and calling into darkness and saying, we, we will not stand for this. Darkness that's harming human life, human flourishing, the imago Dei. We are against anything that harms people or brings about injustice. 
and the tension that that creates. That's our mission. Over the last few months, I've found myself reading over and over and over again, a writing by Martin Luther King Jr. It's probably one of the most profound things that he wrote. It's called A Letter from a Birmingham Jail. Many of you have read it. If you've not read it, every Christian should read this letter. It is a masterpiece of logic, gospel-centered thinking, a call for justice. He wrote this letter to his fellow clergymen, particularly white clergymen, beseeching them to join him in the fight for justice. And a line that just struck me, he described the church, the early Christians, he said, the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. And that, he said, not a, not a thermometer, it was the thermostat that transformed society, that spoke against evil and injustice. Whenever the early Christians enter a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven. The tension, you feel it? A colony of heaven, yet here in God's world, for the world, yet coming against anything that would harm human flourishing. He said, call to obey God rather than man, small in number. They were big in commitment. They were so God intoxicated as to be astronomically intimidated. By their effort and example, they brought to an end such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contests for the world and against the world. Always intention. And what I love about what Martin Luther is saying here is we, we must keep that. T- if we go, if we lose that tension, we lose our mission. We no longer accomplish God's purpose in the world, which is part of this is why we'll come back and, and talk more about diversity in Christ church, the beauty of it, but also the challenge and how sin has warped it in our role. But my purpose today is, is to say, we run the risk of, 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 in releasing the tension, going in either direction and, and getting out of bounds. We could drift into one of two errors. One error is we, we, could, we could be so afraid of our culture that we withdraw. So in wanting to be against evil of the culture, we could become so against it that we become afraid of culture or we become against everything in culture and we just withdraw into a ghetto and we, and we become completely impotent like an ostrich with, with, with its head in the sand. But on the other side, there's the risk of becoming so aligned, so identified with our world and our culture that we get to the point where we have uncritically taken on the culture's idols. And the church simply becomes absorbed into the culture, even domesticated by it. But here's the thing, this also makes the church impotent and irrelevant and takes it totally off mission. 
I call this chameleon church. So we could be ostrich church, which you don't want to be. We don't want our heads in the sands. We have to remain engaged. We have to love our, our world, but we also can't become chameleon church and be totally absorbed. We have to stay in the tension. I can think of so many examples of that chameleon just becoming absorbed in the culture. Sometimes the church tries way too hard to be relevant, to be hip, to be cool, to the point of losing our distinctiveness. So there's always that risk, but there's many examples. If we're not careful, the church could become too aligned with all kinds of ideologies or even, or even political groups, River West, the church should never be associated with any one political party. That would be a form of syncretism that would harm our reputation. You know, Timothy Keller talked about this. He wrote an op-ed for the New York Times titled, How Do Christians Fit Into a Two-Party System? And basically his argument was believers should be can be registered under a political party. They can vote their conscience. They can think deeply about different political parties. But he said, Christians should never identify the Christian church as a whole with any one political party because that will harm our, that, that would cause the outside world to think in order to become a follower of Jesus, I now have to join that party. But that's That's not reality in Christ's kingdom. Not only that, it puts the church in a position where we're no longer able to speak prophetically against elements of any one political party and both have to be criticized by the gospel. And sadly, in the history of evangelicalism, the church has become so aligned at times with the Republican party that it's harmed our witness at times. And here's Jesus saying, you have to maintain attention in the world. Yes, for the world, but also coming against it at critical points. You have to always be able to speak against darkness or evil wherever it may lie, whether it's a different political party or things that are happening in the world. This is a part of bringing the hope and the healing of the gospel. And you know where it all begins with? The cross of Jesus Christ. So this is the perfect transition to the Lord's Supper. Think with me about this. In one sense, the cross was Jesus identifying completely with the world, standing in solidarity with sinful human beings, even taking upon himself their sin. The cross for the world, but in a very other real sense, the cross was totally against the world, against evil, against, it was the rupture, the pain, the tragedy, the trauma of suffering and death as God's cosmic wrath filled no to evil and sin and anything that harms his image bearers modeled by our leader. And as his church, we take that mission and that tension into his world. And we're gonna sing about that right now. And then we're gonna take communion together. 
And I'd like to pray for you, church. Will you bow your heads, Heavenly Father, as we close up this part of the worship and we enter into another part of the worship? Would you hold us in this tension as we think about our identity, the continuation of your people, Israel, chosen, treasured, royal priesthood, your people called to declare your excellencies, called to be against darkness and invite people into light how we wanna fulfill your mission, Jesus, to bring you glory. It's by your grace that we have been called to be your people and we honor and worship you. And we thank you for the, the truth of your word. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen.